This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. We're here for a, a break from camp here today to talk about the J.K. Dobbins situation going on. And more generally, the situation with running back contracts league-wide. We heard about the Zoom call that happened. Uh, we have a, a, a guy who's done some research on this, I think, is very interesting, uncovered some things. And that's Mark Horton. Mark, how you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, no complaints, Mark. Thanks for coming on the show. And and let's talk a little bit, you know, a quick review of running back, running back contracts currently, some of the recent ones, and what portent that holds for uh, J.K. Dobbins. Yep. So just to kick this off, um, I wasn't following the running back contract situation closely until I started to see the Jonathan Taylor and Jim Irsay tweets flying. And this news about the Zoom call and really started uh, wondering what was going on here. So I looked at some of the biggest running back contracts from over the cap, and there's this really interesting trend where the very top of the market right now is Christian McCaffrey at $16 million per year, Alvin Kamara at $15 million per year, um, and Derrick Henry at 12.5 million per year. And those are four, five, and four years uh, contracts respectively, which were signed in 2020. Now, since 2020, when those were signed, and to be clear, that's the 2020 off season. So mm -hmm. after the 2019 season. Since then, the market seems to have fallen off a cliff. So Nick Chubb, has been the only contract over 10 million since then at 12 million per year. That's a three-year contract he signed in 2021. So that's even a step down from those 15, 16 million dollar contracts. Um, I just want to say, obviously, that's very unusual in any growing cap situation that you would have no larger contracts. Yeah. In, in the in a subsequent year, so. It's not only that there's only been one contract, which is remarkable in itself, that you wouldn't have more running backs coming into their money at, at the same time. It's also there hasn't been anything as large. Yeah, exactly. And like we see in a bunch of other positions, even if someone's coming up for that contract and they're not the best player at their position, they're getting mm -hmm. the best contract at their position because of that growing salary cap. The running back market's moving in reverse. So a few other guys have been signed since then, but they're not near the top of the market. Austin Eckler signed a $6 million per year uh, four-year deal in 2021. Um, You're giving us AAVs in each of these cases. Eckler would have been something like $24 million for four years. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, the reason I'm doing it as per-year salaries is because it's going to be really relevant for the franchise tag in particular. Okay, very good. Um, and then there were a few guys extended – since then, like uh, 
Joe Mixon and Miles Sanders, who were well under $10 million. Um, and then where I think the real sky is falling moment happened this offseason is Dalvin Cook getting released from his um, five-year $63 million contract. So he was up in that upper echelon of running back contracts. And then Aaron Jones and Joe Mixon both negotiated pay cuts. In Aaron Jones' case, it's a little bit more ambiguous because he was getting some guaranteed money in return. Um, and then where the drama really started is Saquon Barkley, Josh Jacobs, and Jonathan Taylor, really the top echelon of that position right now, just not having meaningful contract offers to the point where Saquon Barkley, who was originally going to be franchise tagged, took a deal that was basically that $10 million guaranteed one-year deal plus 900000 of incentives. So just almost nothing um, in return for him showing up to camp. So where this gets really strange is the assumption of the CBA is basically that guys on their rookie contracts are going to play as hard as they can in hopes that they'll hit a payday at the end of that rookie deal. And this franchise is this franchise tag is kind of this piece in the middle where teams can get an extra year of control friction uh, by, sure. by uh, paying a fully guaranteed salary, which is roughly the average of the top five salaries at the position. Running backs are in this really unique situation where the guys who've proved that they're good on their rookie contracts have done it by adding a bunch of wear and tear to their body. And this is why you've seen this history of recent running back extensions going really poorly for teams. So if you think about Ezekiel Elliott, if you think about Todd Gurley, a bunch of other guys who aren't coming to the top of my mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's extremely well stated in terms of, wear and tear and and it extends back into the drafting process as well because mm-hmm. sometimes you want to see a player who's had uh you know proven it in college in terms of his ability to run but the first thing i look for is a low wear and tear figure i want to see a guy who's had you know 350 to 600 carries in college not a guy who's had a thousand carries in college mm-hmm. and you you know you, you you come out and yes you know less about that player because of it and i th- my recollection is Dobbins had a fair number of carries at Ohio State. I want to say he had a, a, you know over a thousand carries, but I'm going to look for it right now while you're talking here. Yeah, um, I know but, the yardage totals were high. Yeah, and I, we're going to get to Dobbins in a little bit, but he's such sure. an interesting case because he was a workhorse in high school. He was a workhorse in college. He had a pretty horrific ankle injury in high school. What that was a break in a bunch of ligament tears. He fought through that to come back in college. He had a horrific knee injury in the NFL. So he's almost this poster child of the dilemma that running backs are in, where mm-hmm. he's a guy who always wanted to be on the field, always was playing. You can tell he loves the game, playing his butt off every snap. And what he gets in return for it is he's almost certainly going to hit the end of his rookie deal and have a market that's not at all commensurate with the work he put in over his rookie deal because teams are going to look at him with a lot of skepticism saying, Hey, we've seen so many other running backs with this amount of wear and tear and this injury history just fall off a cliff Mm -hmm. um, once they're extended. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. It it extends beyond running backs, but running backs is probably the, the worst 
specific position for it. One guy who, you know, who plays for the Ravens, who I thought was headed for big money, he had an injury in his contract year, which was unfortunate. It was Brent Urban, who'd been a, a, a guy who played a ton of snaps. And honestly, I, you know, it's it's the difference in the NFL in his case, where he's more at the survivor level now, where he could have made, you know, 14 million over 10 years, say, as opposed to making 30 million over 10 years. And JK, I think, is going to do better than that in terms of his uh what the A and B points are. I don't see a, a way where where Dobbins is going to be out of the NFL after this year. I just think he's gonna to have to accept less money, which is not, you know, not obviously what he would want. Um, mm-hmm. but he's still got you know, one of the highest yards per carry in NFL history through through a, a limited number of carries, which is which is outstanding. He's got some some elements on his resume that are positive, even if that doesn't come through. With a yeah. player like with a, with a player like Urban, it really his injury history um, and and the fact that teams weren't. I mean, he had to completely change kind of his career objectives in terms of being a survivor, being willing to play, or looking perhaps for a team that wanted to keep him for a, a succession of vet men contracts at the end of his career. So, or near that. And, uh, and so Dobbins is not quite in, in that position, but most of the NFL is most mm. of the NFL are a bunch of fringe guys. There aren't that many big contracts in total and it's, it's all positions total. There are not a lot. Now I'm not, I'm not saying the running back situation isn't horrifically bad in terms of this reversal trend that you're talking about. Um, but it, it was kind of proven is the wrong word. It, it, it occurred because of real life facts. It occurred mm-hmm. because of failed second contracts for running backs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to this point, it's not only running backs. You're completely right. The whole reason that draft picks have value is mm-hmm. because you have this very artificial employment structure. Yeah. The Supreme Court literally made a carve out for professional sports and said, well, all these teams have reasons to collude against this, these players in ways that would otherwise be illegal, and you need to do it for competitive parity. But draft picks have value because they allow you to underpay pay players compared to their market value. Yeah, I, I, you know, I completely agree. We do a show on this every year, but your only good surprises come from your young players, and all of your ability to beat the cap comes from your young players, all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can only beat the cap by a little bit by making really smart free agent choices. You can beat the cap by an unbelievable amount if you make great draft picks, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's definitely the the case. I, I I wouldn't get into the laborization of this or the antitrust positions and whatnot that have been allowed by by uh, legal bodies in the United States. I just say you know the the, the playing field is what it is well, in terms the- of. Sorry, the reason I bring it up isn't about the politics. It's mm-hmm. about the fact that you have a really artificial market. Yes, that's true. And I think this is becoming meaningful um, with the running backs in particular, because with other positions, the market's weird, but you at least have the incentives for players to go on the field, play as hard as they can, and show put their best foot forward to fight for another contract. What's really strange that's happening right now is that incentive might actually be dissolving. So if a running back plays over their rookie contract, plays hard on the field, maybe gets banged up, um, has season-ending injuries, maybe doesn't even, but they've just accrued the wear and tear of playing that position, 
it's hurting their contract value. And then because the top of the market is kind of falling away and nothing's happened since 2020, and one of these 2020 extensions, Dalvin Cook just got released, other guys are restructuring, suddenly the franchise tag's falling off a cliff. So the franchise tag has been a pretty acceptable, I did a good job in my rookie contract payday for a lot of players. In the case of running backs, that seems to be sliding because this assumption that the top players at their position are going to have this real like market above the rookie deals to themselves, um, that seems to be breaking down at the moment. Right. So I, I, you know, I see what you're saying here. So you're saying not the J.K. Dobbins' problem is not only that no team may want to give him a multi-year deal. It's that the Ravens might want to franchise him next year and the, the, the franchise tag might only be eight or nine million dollars. Right. Yep. And the okay. wonderful thing about the franchise tag from a front office's perspective is you have optionality. Right. You only have to pay for one year and then you can decide what you want to do from there. And that's particularly valuable with running backs because you don't know when the wheels are going to fall off. So if you only have to bet on one year of productivity instead of three, that's a more solid bet. Great. Well, that's a, that's a great point in general. That's that's a fantastic point that you generally shorter term contracts are tem, are generally ones that the team is more interested in doing because of exactly that. I'll give you the other side of that is that in today's world with the cap being what it is. Um, teams are desperately struggling to find ways to pay for this year's production next year, the year after, et cetera. So that's why we've seen the prevalence of void years. There's now five Ravens contracts that have void years. I thought it was four, but Gino Stone also has void years now, I found, mm -hmm. as well. So that optionality, while extremely valuable, I agree, um, is something that they have more contract flexibility and can make more of those dollars fungible in different years by having a contract that is multiple years. And that is definitely one of the problems with, with uh, uh, quarterback contracts that are guaranteed in particular. I, I, did, I, I need to say one other thing about this. The fundamentals of the NFL contract situation have not changed much. It is a revenue-sharing league. In, in a lot of ways, there's nothing more egalitarian than that in, in any of the major sports. Okay, it's a, it's a group you know that, that gets a percentage of total revenue assigned to them for contracts that effectively 100% and sometimes more has been spent, probably more on average, by teams in a year. Now, there are teams that underspend in a year because they want to push money forward, but they always spend to the cap or more and some of the or more has been for the COVID years that happened recently, that the NFL had lower revenues. Players didn't want to be get paid less. So the, the owners effectively borrowed from future years of cap. Effectively, the players borrowed from future years of cap in order to do that. But they also gave some dollars away. The owners also mm -hmm. gave some dollars away on top of that. So what that means is that the owners are now in scramble mode to try and figure out where the borrowed dollars are going to be not spent. Now, we just witnessed the, in this offseason, Lamar Jackson having this long protracted struggle with the Ravens about his contract, of course. If J.K. Dobbins wants to find the person most responsible for taking his money, it's not the owners. It's Lamar Jackson. There's a fixed pool of money. It's what the NFLPA did 
to try and get Lamar Jackson a fully guaranteed contract and how, you know, how outstanding that contract became. Now, do I think Lamar doesn't deserve it? No, I mean, I want Lamar in Baltimore just like everybody else. But do I think that that um, he's that the NFLPA hurt the rest of their constituency by basically supporting guaranteed contracts for for quarterbacks? Absolutely. And if I were an offensive lineman or a safety or in this case, a running back, I would be pissed about it in a general sense. I would be pissed that the NFLPA is supporting guaranteed quarterback contracts with some other interest in mind, probably like a, a negotiating tactic tactic in a future CBA or a dollars allocated that don't count against the cap the way the vet min does. I mean, that's a very small amount of, of total money, but the, but the dollars counted, not counted against the quarterback. Let's say that were 5 million per team. All of a sudden that would just be a straight 5 million increase to revenue sharing. I'd so, like to push back respectfully on this. Sure. Go to it. So I, I think you can make one of two pre- presuppositions and they change the way you look at this a lot. One is as revenue grows, players, the pool of money allocated to players via the salary cap is going to grow commensurately and fairly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, it's, it's going to grow cap, in total. I'm not going to, I'm not going to agree to the commensurately and fairly yet, but please make your point. Well, my point is um, in effect, I think what the NFLPA is trying to do here is say, if we can increase individual player salary, then there's more demand for the salary cap to increase. So while Lamar Jackson's bigger contract might be bad for other Ravens players looking for a payday, maybe if you extend it league wide, then suddenly it becomes good for players as a whole. And this seems to be the attitude players have about it, where they tend to support each other getting paid congratulate each other on contracts and i think there's a feeling that a rising tide lifts all boat among all boats among players now you might think that's incorrect but that seems to be the attitude of the players yeah, in the I, NFLPA. I, I completely agree that that's the strategy of the mm-hmm. nflpa in terms of effectively increasing the total amount of dollars that are shared by all players mm-hmm. so but there is a there that is a negotiated thing in the future that they're creating a tripwire for future negotiations to have that on the table to say, basically you can't have quarterbacks um, you, you know, that don't have guaranteed contracts because they get hurt too much. And then you, you, you want to cut them and whatnot. Uh, and this, and by the way, all that applies to all players. Well, effectively what you're saying, if you want to just make a special safe Harbor for quarterbacks, that adds five or 10 million per team is the one additional dollars of revenue sharing. That is the ultimate battle line. It is dug in trench warfare between both sides. That will that is always the you know the, the stopping point of any CBA discussion is is you know how much of this total revenue do you guys get and how much do we get for being the owners and the owners it was as high as sixty percent one time it's come successively down several times and now it's back on a slight uptrick I think it's around fifty one and a half percent now. You might know, mm. I, I I don't, but it's, but it's, it's come, it was, it was originally honestly set much too high mm. and, you know, ownership just wasn't, wasn't benefiting <laughs> from their own ownership as much as they should have. And the players are benefiting more and, and um, that that's, that's adjusted itself naturally kind of over time. And I think that, that, you know, that it'll, there'll be a battleground on this, but an extra 5 million, let's say uh, dollars to teams, that's a 2% increase um, to total cap, which is effectively a 2% increase in 
revenue sharing. Mm -hmm. I don't see that happening without an enormous fight. So, uh, you know, basically now the NFLPA has has tried to make this 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 point that yeah we want more more dollars and here's why we need them kind of thing. And you know, if I'm the owner, if I'm an owner in this situation, here's here's my my saying is this: Look, I am absolutely agnostic to how these dollars are divided. But this is my end line here. I, I you know, I, I can give you 51.5% of the total revenues, but you guys have to figure out how to divide them. You can't make it my problem again, because it's not. We mm-hmm. agreed on 51.5%. Now, you you figure out how that should be structured among you, but you could even have an agreement among your players that say, you know, quarterbacks say, well, I can never earn more than 18% of the cap for a given team. Uh, I don't care how you divide that money between veterans and young players. My strategy will adjust, as we've seen here from this last time around, that if rookies get paid a lot less, I'm going to I'm gonna value draft picks higher than I'm mm-hmm. going to value veteran contracts. But look, I am completely agnostic to how you divide your share of the money. All right. Tell me what the rules are. I'll play with it within those rules. But don't tell me you want more money when we've been playing under a very fair total division of, of dollars, and especially not when you're then trying to manipulate individual contracts as you did with the Lamar Jackson deal. And I think part of where the guarantees come in is, you know, even if Lamar's contract wasn't as heavily guaranteed, there's a strong chance that most of it's going to pay out. So guarantees get talked about That's a right. lot in terms of cap implications. But one of the real implications is the owner has to write a check today and put it in escrow for a fully guaranteed contract. And people with lots of money prefer money now over money later because that's money you can invest in earn interest on. I, I, I don't disagree with that comment, by the way. And we're now in an environment where we have significant interest rates. So that, so that actually the borrowing to put that money into escrow would be something. But Let's not pretend like those dollars aren't available to NFL owners who need them. So if they mm-hmm. if, if they want to borrow against their franchise, for example, to put up a guaranteed contract on Joe Burrow or maybe Deshaun Watson is not a good example because because Haslam is very rich, but uh, you know Steve Bashotti is is you know has six billion dollars in total. It wouldn't be an issue for him, even if he had some cash poor elements. And somebody on the show suggested once he might only have eighty million dollars in cash. I really don't believe that because it'd only be about one and a half percent of net worth or less than one and a half percent of net worth. But I think that that if if all of his money were tied up in shares of some sort, he could still use them as collateral. And actually it became an interesting question for me. Could he just put up the shares on a mark to market basis? So you put up shares and sure, the shares could go down 50 percent in a year. Then you have to put up more shares. But could he do that in an, in, in terms of escrowing the value? And then pay them out of current revenue as they as those dollars came due to the quarterback. Mm-hmm. Well, and in a sense, um, okay, even rich owners who have all that money sitting around or mm-hmm. could liquidize something easily, um, they care about the interest aspect. Oh, absolutely. Like, this is why money now is better than money later, and I think uh, this is part of why fully guaranteed has become such a big point is because if the player gets the money now. Actually, I don't know how the dynamics of escrow work, but I would assume you can at least invest it in escrow in yes. some way you agree in. I, I would I'd be sure of that. That you that there's got to be interest on those escrowed funds. And and it probably cannot be quite as good as the kind of return 
an owner could get on his other business interests. If he owns a shipping company, if he owns a staffing company, if he owns whatever else it might be, a trucking company, he could probably get a better return on that than he can on the escrow account. But he's mm-hmm. still, I, I would think you got, probably could agree that it's going to be invested in the S&P 500, you know, total stock market index. It wouldn't surprise me if that were allowed. Yeah. So in that sense, it's a way for players to squeeze out a little bit more over the actual cap because that's money that they're getting with the ability to invest it earlier. Maybe. I think that's how they're looking at it. I I don't think it would work that way. I think the escrow fund would be sitting over here. This would be my opinion of it just as a finance guy. Escrow fund sits over here in in the hands of some law firm or some investment company more likely. And it's it's let's say in the in the case of Deshaun Watson, it's two hundred and thirty million dollars less whatever he got in at the time of signing. It, so let's say it's two hundred million. It sits over that the first year it grows to two hundred and forty five million, and there has to be some money paid out. That that goes ahead and happens, and then they either they would reset those dollars at whatever was required from that point forward and give the rest back to the owner because he's really the owner of that fund. That's why it's escrowed as opposed to just given to the player. Mm-hmm. But the player doesn't doesn't accrue the earnings. The player, once he gets the gets those earnings himself, is then able to invest his own dollars and and earn them. But the but the escrow fund is that's that's the owner's money. Okay. Until it's paid out. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh I'm gonna digress back to the Please, running yes. back conversation. But great by the way, great conversation. You are extremely knowledgeable on this stuff, Mark. I, I can't say how much I appreciate having you on for this. Yeah, it's fun to talk about. Uh maybe a show for another time too. <laughs> But um, I so what I was kind of saying before, the, the 2011 CBA was a big deal because that's when they uh, created the rookie wage scale. And it was one that, in effect, made draft picks very valuable because you got rookies for very cheap. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like before that, you had to negotiate with your draft picks more meaningfully. And that was a messy process with its own issues. but. This, the NFLPA was in this really interesting position where you have everyone who's currently in the NFL, and then you have the people who you're not representing yet who can come into the NFL. And if you pay those people coming in less, then there's more money available for your veterans now. So, oh, the unintended consequences of that. So they've got the, the, the 11 and 21 deals between the two of them included the vet minimum scale, which allowed veterans to hang in the league for longer. So it had that benefit for the veteran players who are already in the league. It took away money and nobody wanted to see Jamarcus Russell, players like that getting huge, huge checks and then, you know, getting fat and, and not playing well in the NFL. It, it People wanted to see less money going to rookies and everybody was happy with it. The fans, I think, were pretty much happy with it. the owners were happy with it and the players were happy with it. And the unintended consequences of that relative structure are what ended up biting the NFLPA and the players in the butt later is that's okay. Those are the new rules, but we set them up to be this way. And now it's a much better value than it ever has been before to sign a draft pick and have a draft pick than it is to have a veteran player because those guys are all market value after their fourth year. Right. And this gets to the comparison between running backs and other positions. Mm-hmm. So at other positions, you're taking a pay cut so that one day if you play well, you can hit free agency and you can get a big payday. 
And even if you have to wait an extra year on the franchise tag, for most positions, that's between like 18 and 20 million. For running backs, it's 10 and it looks like it's sliding further. So my strong suspicion is that if Saquon was on the market right now as an unrestricted free agent, if Jonathan Taylor was, if Josh Jacobs was, they would be making a lot more than 10 million per year and they could get few year deals. But because there's not this top end of the market with these long-term deals holding up the franchise tag, the franchise tag becomes this really attractive option. And because the franchise tags, this really attractive option, then there's not these long-term deals. And I think running backs are seeing this very quick race to the bottom where the franchise tag is actually disincentivizing teams from extending them, which is further pulling down the franchise tag relative to the rest of the league. All all 100% true. Agree with all of that. It's also a, a, um, a realization by the league that production relative to contract, there's multiple things here going on. Production relative to contract for running backs has just not been as good in out years. So we start with that. It's a crappy situation for running backs, and you got into it with the wear and tear components. So I'm not gonna, we're not gonna recover that. Um, but but it's also one where the nature of offenses in the NFL have changed how that's, uh, you know, how how it's important to have running backs or not, and so much so that you know we hear about the question being answered, asked, do running backs matter? anymore mm-hmm. on analytics exams or analytics, you know, uh, competitions. It's talk about that a little bit. So, okay. I'm a math guy. I like analytics. I think we've gone too far with the running back conversation in some ways. And at some point you have to trust the eye test. Like I've seen good running backs produce clear surplus yards. You know, you break a tackle that a lesser guy wouldn't have broken. And I've seen bad running backs leave yards on the field. Sure. So they're obviously having some impact on the game. And further, it's not like fullbacks where they're just getting taken off the field. Even in the move towards this more pass-happy NFL, even on true passing downs, teams are almost never taking their running back off the field. So it's not as if the running back is a position that you actually want off the field. It's a lot more about the market dynamics of you have a surplus of running backs, a contract structure, which makes them cheap. And all of this serves as disincentive to pay them. Yeah, it, that's a that's a very valid point. The, the part of it that I want to kind of push back on is we talked about they don't want to take their running back off the field. The truth of the matter is running backs, with the exception of a few players on a few teams at the top of the market, are platoon players. Mm-hmm. You have a you have a two-headed monster, you have a three-headed monster. You have oftentimes a guy who's a, a passing down specialist who's in there. He's a little bit better pass blocker, but he wouldn't be the guy you'd normally choose on earlier downs, maybe a little bit more slippery receiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have two different styles of running back beyond that. And that has big advantages for the team. And it's a good model to follow because it's cheaper for starters. It's less prone to injury. And it, the same arguments apply about it that I apply to platooning of inside linebackers, particularly on the weak side, that you, you gain an advantage if you have a dime back and a, you know, a, a two-down thumper or even a dime back and a pass-rushing specialist and a two-down thumper that you can use among those, those inside linebackers. You, you don't have to pay anybody a whole lot of money because they're mm-hmm. all platoon players. 
You don't have injury risk nearly as much because they're all specialists and it's much easier to find the specialist than it is to find the three down unicorn at the position. And I think that, uh, you know, inside linebacker and running back are very similar in that they're very common size and shape pools. Mm -hmm. So high school athlete stars and college for that matter, there's a lot of star linebackers. There's a lot of star linebackers who come out of school. There's a lot of star running backs. I, the the best athletes gravitate to those two positions quite frequently. And, it, you know, it's just it, the 5'10 to 6 foot, 180 to 215 pound guy is a much more common body type than to try and find a left tackle who's 6'7 and 34 and a half inch arms. And so that's a great point. And I think that's actually where the solution to this is going to come from over the very long term. I think the fix is already in the pipeline, but we're not going to see it for a little while longer. So one of the, so to the size and shape pool point, you know, Saquon Barkley, JK Dobbins, Spencer Nathaniel Schultz of uh, Exit 52 um, mm -hmm. had a really good conversation on this. JK Dobbins, I think had the highest spark score, which is like this, that's this athleticism score in his uh, class. He's a shorter guy. Saquon Barkley's notably freakishly athletic. Um, so these like shorter freak athletes have been pigeonholed into the running back position from a young age for a long time. That's where they've ended up. And then it ends up being a very crowded position. I think the development that's going to make a big difference here is kids coming up now are coming through 7v7 leagues. And Football at all levels seems a lot more interested in using smaller receivers. So these really explosive shorter athletes who have real jitter to their game, like these J.K. Dobbins and these Saquon Barkleys, if they're coming up now, are probably running thousands of routes before they hit the higher levels of football. And if you look at the running backs coming out of recent draft classes, these Travis Etienne's, um, like... Uh, even Bijan Robinson, um, these guys really are offering more in the passing game. And, you know, like the running back who really broke the market trend, Christian McCaffrey, because the 49ers just gave up substantial draft capital to acquire him on a high contract. He's that guy who can really run routes and can really make contested catches and do receiver work more than anyone in the NFL. So, I think where the equilibrium is really going to come from is that receivers become a position that really draws from a more diverse size and shape pool. And if you look at Zay Flowers and Devin Duvernay now, those are both guys who can kind of do some running back duties. They have kind of running back athletic skill sets, but they came through that receiver position instead, and they're going to have a little bit less wear and tear on them as they get through their contracts. You know, that's a great point. Uh, and that'll be an interesting to see how that develops. You, the developmental logic of that makes a lot of sense. The one element that I think maybe is not fully considered in the notion that you can have guys of any size playing wide receiver is, is the X receiver position. So once you have to have a wide receiver, or sometimes it's two if you're playing 11 personnel that are on the line of scrimmage, that mm -hmm. re does require more size to, to do that and to get off press. So it's, it's not as it's not as easy to say I can have a guy of any size out there. You do need to have some tall guys and some big physical guys that you play at the line of scrimmage, particularly at the X 
uh, in the NFL. Just it, it doesn't really work with a smaller uh, receiver on an every down basis. So I, I, while I agree in general that there's a lot more um, variation of body type that is possible, that we've seen some very successful smaller receivers in the NFL in recent years, um, I, I think they're, they still are more or less limited to the slot and Z roles where um, they at least might be able to be off the line of scrimmage when they're, when they're playing. And this is where I, I think it's hard to predict where the schematic evolution is going to go, right? Like the Miami Dolphins seem pretty happy to have Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I could be wrong about this. I think Tyreek Hills has spent plenty of time around the X. And the pr- proposition is you can press me. You might get away with it a few times. But if you screw up once, I'm getting an ADR touchdown on you. Right. Um, and you know, maybe there's more tight ends, these Isaiah likely builds who can split out into the X and maybe force you to bring a linebacker over there. You know, like I think offensive coordinators are getting more creative with the games they play. And, you know, like maybe my suggestions in particular are bad, but there seems to be more ideas in the pipeline to deal with that issue. Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, fantastic points, I think, regardless uh, in, in terms of the, the evolution of the game could go a lot of ways. And you know, one thing that's going to be true is organizations are going to be smart about dealing with the talent they have at the price they have. And so general managers can go out and try and get the talent they can for the given total pool of money that they have. That's what Eric DaCosta does very well. Uh, he has to do it via draft picks and he has to do it via the cap. And mm-hmm. whatever talent he can he can give to the coachings for the Baltimore Ravens, you just hope that their coaching staff is then able to u- utilize that in whatever way works best. And sometimes that may be a smaller guy at receiver. Sometimes it may be a platoon at certain positions. Inside linebacker, running back are very easy positions currently to platoon. Wide receiver might be. I don't see a time. I really don't see a time when you're going to be able to platoon your left tackle or your quarterback. <laughs> and and th- and those are just. There's going to be some positions which have size and shape advantages over others. Uh, uh, you know, even as 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 much as we can, you know, uh, make changes, rotate, you know, platoon. Um, there's just certain positions where you can't do it. I'm actually. I have a conspiracy theory that one day QB is going to be a platoon position after the mobile revolution uh, huh. quarterback revolution comes, but we'll see. I think that's, I think that's far off. Um, <laughs> um, Great stuff. The, the other thing, I think one of the most sneakily interesting players on the Ravens right now is actually Gus Edwards. So in the Greg Roman system, he he did have a vision for the pass game that I think is a little bit underappreciated. He would really try to overload one side of the field and then kind of leave the other side empty as a natural scramble lane. It's hard to rush Lamar. You're scared of what'll happen um, if you overcommit, if you don't maintain contain. So having a running back in there who can actually contribute as a blocker, both in pass protection and even like Gus Edwards put down one of the most beautiful blocks. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. 
Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. ...of the year, I think, on a jet motion sweep with Devin Duvernay. Like, having that Gus Edwards type that comes from a fullback background might be a really interesting schematic element um, in some of the more creative offenses with mobile quarterbacks. And even Shanahan has, like, on non-short yardage situations had Kyle Juszczyk as the lone guy in the backfield. Mm-hmm. So running, my point about running backs earlier isn't you're leaving the same guy on the field all the time. It's that there is a guy on the yes, field. Yes, that's, r- that's right. Mm-hmm. So, and I think there's kind of evidence in the way running backs are being valued and the way they're used that, it's an evolving position right now. And it's one that's going to be really interesting to see where it's going. And different teams might really want running backs who have different ways to contribute in the pass game or to pair with mobile quarterbacks. Like I think it's one of the least stationary positions in football in terms of what kind of guys are going to come into it, what they're going to be asked to do. And to your point about, you know, guys, um, you can only have so many guys in the slot at once. This wide back position is another interesting idea where you're having guys run real routes out of the backfield and you're having guys with these ambiguous slot receiver running back positions like Debo Samuel. Yeah, there, there is. And there's a definitely a trend towards that. And, and we see that in terms of pony backfields where, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they want to put in a second back. The, the commanders were doing it a lot the last few years or the Washington football team, whatever you want to call them over that period when, when they had. Uh, players they would often have two of the running backs on the field and one would be as a slot receiver and uh and you, know, you can use them for motion you can use them for a whole lot of things but it's definitely one of the um difficulties for dealing with them that you you, you force opposing defensive coordinators to have roman it was multiple tight ends mm-hmm. you know is how the hell are the ravens going to line up and how do i need do i need to be super heavy do i need to be lighter and do i need to have an extra safety on the field to cover a, a tight end or do I need to have an extra guy in the box who's a who's a heavier big time thumper that can deal with their massive run game um, it, it created all kinds of problems for opposing yeah. defensive coordinators and to my like use check point maybe you see more tight ends in the backfield on true passing situations mm-hmm. especially these shorter bowling ball types who are really hard to tackle and who might be good candidates for that kind of moving around uh, mobile piece and pass protection role but um, we'll see. I, that's, that's above my pay grade. That's for smarter people to figure out. Um, we, we've got to go back to JK Dobbins for a minute here and, and kind of wrap up this show. H- how are you feeling about the way communications have been handled in this ongoing dispute? And obviously there's, there's people at the network label saying this, his PUP situation only gets, is the kind that only gets resolved by a new contract. Can I uh, drag this out a little bit longer? Because I want to do a bit more setup before I get to JK. So Dalvin Cook was one of those big contracts. He got cut. If Alvin Kamara's in legal trouble, he's another one of those ones. It seems like he could be in for a cut at some point. All of these long-term contracts seem to be structured pretty team-friendly so that they can get out of them. Derrick Henry takes an enormous amount of wear and tear Nick Chubb has to share a salary cap with Deshaun Watson. So I think there's a lot of danger of more of these guys getting cut, more of the top contracts falling away, and the franchise tag falling further. So 
I think the running back Zoom call is about how do we stop this from happening? How do we get actual extensions? And I think JK is in a bad place to contribute to that maybe right now. I think if it was one year from now and J.K. Dobbins was franchise tagged, he would be one of the main people here. I think on an emotional level, all of this is hitting him very directly. You know, he's the guy who laid it all out there for the team, played super hard, and is probably going to be penalized for it. But he's really a year away from realistically being in this franchise tag situation. And I suspect his deal's going to resolve itself or it's going to be a really modest extension with the Ravens. I could be wrong about that, um, but I think that he's going to show up at some point. Um, in terms of team communications, I love what Todd Munkin said about it, which is I'm not going to talk about another man's money. Like, I don't think there's any question that J.K. Dobbins loves football. I don't think he's doing this because he's lazy or because he doesn't want to play or because he doesn't want to prove himself. I think he's actually between a rock and a hard place and is also looking out for his position mates at running back, which is what a lot of this is about. Um, It seems like Harbaugh and Munkin are getting a little bit more testy in terms of, well, we need you to be on the field to make sure that you can actually be our guy this year. I don't know. I think there's a tug of war going on. I don't know what everyone's supposed to do. I think they're all in a very messy situation created by a CBA that's becoming really dysfunctional. And I think the good news is at least we're not the Colts. Yes. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, on Wednesday, uh, Harbaugh spoke to it and he speaks to it most days where he's at the podium. Mm-hmm. And his uh, his comment was that the question actually was was well phrased and it put Harbaugh in a position that was kind of difficult to answer. He says, at what point does J.K. Dobbins absence become a problem? And, mm-hmm. you know, that 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 doesn't leave him with much wiggle room to talk about why the sun is yellow. OK, right. So so he, he basically had to had to address it directly and say, well, I, I, I don't know, but at some point it, it does. And I talked to J.K. last night. He said he talks to him fairly frequently, which is good. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I've been very impressed with the way that Lamar Jackson's contract negotiations have been handled, particularly from the Ravens' side. Now, I, I'm not saying that Lamar is um, uh, was bad in terms of what he did, but he said a lot that was probably outside of the bounds they'd agreed upon in terms of, of what went on in the offseason. And, and the you know, the, the Ravens answer pretty much the whole time was, you know, Lamar's family. I've got to separate Lamar, the um, the quarterback from Lamar, the negotiator. And I don't always like each equally and that kind of thing. That's <laughs> fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's I, I think one of the best comments you can make is think about your own family and getting together on Thanksgiving with them. You have to love these people. You don't have to always like them. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there's, there's probably a bunch of your relatives. You're just not that crazy about. You don't, you don't have, but you, you only have to see them one day or maybe two per year and it may have occasional family gathering, whatever it might be. And, you know, you have to love them during that time. And, and, and it's it, with Lamar Jackson, um, you know, they clearly love Lamar, the quarterback, and they clearly just wanted to get back to this unstrained relationships where, where they, where they could not talk about contract and just talk about football, damn it. And both of them wanted that so badly. It was, it was, was kind of clear throughout the negotiations. And I think the Ravens did a really good job 
of holding up their part of the discussions on this. I think the, the Dobbins situations, they're not at that point because they're not in a contract dispute with J.K. Dobbins. J.K. Mm-hmm. Dobbins is under contract. He's, you know, he is for the rest of the year. He's holding out, um, we think, um, because of the, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of, of, a, of a decent contract and the lack of a, of a long-term contract from his point of view. Um, it's a very difficult situation. It completely sucks for the running backs in this league. But I think, again, the Ravens have kind of taken more of the high ground in terms of the communications here. Maybe not quite as well as they did with Jackson, but I think they've taken more of that high ground. Right. And I think what's really important here, which they did a pretty good job at with Lamar, and I think they're doing a pretty good job at with JK so far, is let the front office deal with front office stuff and the coaching staff will deal with coaching stuff. You know, like the coaches can get on this pedestal and say, well, he's acting like a guy who doesn't care about the team and he should be out here. Um, And I appreciate that they're taking a step back and saying, this is contract matters. It's money. It's not our business to deal with. And I think that separation is really important so that when hopefully JK is back on the field, the relationships with the coaching staff uh, who he has to deal with day to day are where they need to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, one of the things, if you look back at JK's history is he was extremely upset coming off the field when he got hurt in the preseason mm-hmm. and, you know, basically said very within a very short period of time, this is why am I even on the field during the preseason? Right. Which well, is very on JK Dobbins. Like, uh-huh. because the he's rest of the time the he's saying, why am I not on the field? <laughs> That's a great point. You know, PUP, he was on PUP demanded to come off and it was right. way too early. And then he had to go back, you know, on, on IR to get that procedure done. So yeah, absolutely. Well, and that was so much crazier in retrospect, seeing how he was running at the end of the year. Cause what JK Dobbins did last year really is like nothing short of heroic. He was mm-hmm. going out there on one working leg and just winning with vision and contact balance. But every time he was in the open field, he was getting hawked by people who were much slower than him when he came out of college. Like this, one of the big selling points of JK Dobbins is he is a true breakaway runner who can get around the edge and go. And I would have to think JK Dobbins, uh, when we saw him at the end of the year would have been one of the slowest running backs in football in the open field. And he was, efficient in spite of that just by doing everything else almost let's, perfectly last year let's give I, I agree Dobbins deserves a lot of the credit for that and I thought his Lamar his helps too <laughs> first 10 years well Lamar helps and Roman helps a lot the Roman mm-hmm. scheme made him a great runner just the way it made Lamar great in a lot of different ways and let's not forget to give some of that proper credit to the to the to the people who are no longer here uh in a case Monk's scheme is going to be different an 11 personnel running game is much more about, uh, you know, not about necessarily a blocking scheme, finding that hole for you, but more about, you know, you have to make do with less, break more tackles earlier on and 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 be a better yards after contact runner. And Edwards is that guy. Um, and he's really is that guy when first contact comes in level two, um, because you got to, you know, you're dealing with a smaller man, but Dobbins, we'll see, you know, we'll see if he can, if he can fulfill that role in the same way, but you've hit it. You've hit on it right on the money in terms of vision and contact balance were the two things that he still had last year. Mm-hmm. Well, I think people might be surprised how little 11 personnel were running under Munkin. And that <laughs> might be a discussion for a different day, but his, 
he really has a chameleon scheme. Like I think we've dubbed him as this 11 personnel spread guy. But if you look at Georgia, there's a lot of running. There were a lot of tight ends on the field. And he's done pretty different things at different places he's went to. And Isaiah likely might be one of those guys who you just can't really keep off the field. But um, it could get... So last year, they drafted a generational stretch run blocker in Tyler Linderbaum. They have Ronnie on that side. I think they might be trying to get Salah into that left guard spot because of his mobility and ability to climb to the second level. So this might become a stretch run game, which is exactly what people were saying J.K. Dobbins should have been drafted into in the first place. So it could actually be a pretty dang good scheme for him, but that, this is all cogent. speculation. Yeah, that's it, extremely cogent. And if, and if Salah can, at the same time, hold up as a pass blocker next to Linderbaum, where that A-gap is going to be the big problem for the Ravens, I believe, this year, then I completely agree with the with the opportunity, but you can't sacrifice all of something else that's more important to get this advantage that's less important, namely, you know, having an above average stretch run game uh, to, to uh, uh, but you can't give up your pass blocking game for that. Right. Uh, did you have something else we want to talk about before we close this out? Uh, I just wanted to pull up the Ursay quotes and okay, sure. give a little bit more context into what's going on over at the Colts and how I think this might end up. So the one that I think was, disrespectful but less insightful is if i die tonight and jonathan taylor's out of the league no one's gonna miss us the league goes on we know that the nfl rolls on it doesn't matter who comes and goes and it's a privilege to be a part of it now i don't think ursay should use that privilege word unless he's willing to meet roquan smith in the a gap you know (laughs) that's that's a, a hell of a thing to say and honestly i'm not a colts fan but I'm going to be a lot more interested in that team if I see uh, Jonathan Taylor next to Anthony Richardson. That's interesting. That's really watchable football. Um, that really adds something to the sport, in my opinion. So I really don't like this dismissiveness of one of the best players on your team who's really adding something to the sport is just another guy. Um, but then I think the the more cogent one is Ursay tweeted, we have negotiated a CBA that took years of effort and hard work and compromise in good faith by both sides. To now say that a specific player category wants another negotiation after the fact is inappropriate. Some agents are selling bad faith. And the response of Jonathan Taylor's agent is bad faith is when you don't play your pay your best player on offense. So where I think this could get really interesting is the franchise tag is fully guaranteed and that might be where this blows up if you have running backs quiet quitting on the franchise tag to get to a next contract which might be heavily incentive based because no one wants to guarantee them after they just quiet quit on a franchise tag. sure but they're still a really good player like that might be a very reasonable thing to do and it might not only be for the bad guy who hates his team because if running backs see themselves as part of the running back brotherhood and the sky's falling on all of you and none of you can get paid and it's contingent on the top few salaries at your position, you know, maybe you're in some sense doing a favor for everybody by playing really dirty and saying, I need to be playing on an actual extension, not a franchise tag. And I think this is where 
this whole structure gets really bad for the game. You know, like maybe guys, this is another point of uh, Spencer Schultz. Um, maybe guys stick around college longer because they love running backs there and it, there's NIL deals now. You know, maybe a minor league decides they want to pay running backs really well. Not minor league, but like th- there are all de- kinds of football league kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. There are all kinds of things that go wrong here when your incentive structure breaks down and players are no longer incentivized to put their best foot forward. And I'm not even going to say that's because they're jerks. I think if you treat them as rational and protecting their running back position, there should be a lot of messiness in the next few years with these players on franchise tags. I'll say, I honestly believe this will correct itself um, that the, the running backs don't have to get to the for a Zoom call. They don't have to do anything else other than negotiate in good faith as time moves on. And this may be a little Pollyanna-ish, but um, this is largely a function of recent paucity of cap dollars created by the COVID years. Then the ensuing wave that is actually a pretty darn big wave of void years coming through there. And then teams having to, to to look at financial decisions more closely and say, running back is the position we can afford to cut. Running uh, inside linebacker is the position we can afford to cut. I really believe that's been the reason for it. So as we get out more years, those ripples, those waves will turn into ripples and there'll be less of a significant impact on, on running back contracts. And I think we'll get back to more as the next generation rolls through, as Bijan Robinson hits his second contract as JK, you know, two years from now probably is up for another contract. Um, then we'll see uh, how those are, are are doing. I think, I think there will be more money to pay to running backs under those circumstances, but the evolution for the game has not, has not favored them. And the CBA and the NFLPA's behavior has not favored them in terms of uh, how they uh, have, have gone about trying to allocate dollars among their own. So the first thing, the, the group that the, the running backs really need to be talking to is the NFLPA themselves and say, stop freaking doing what you're doing with quarterbacks. Stop trying to assign all the money to them. You know, Figure out a way to get us paid on our second deals because this is the biggest problem the NFLPA has now as a, as a group. Well, I, I think there's also some fortuity to other things. You know, 2020, all those contracts hit. Those guys are starting to fall out now with mm-hmm. Dalvin Cook, Christian Mc- or Joe Mixon, Aaron Jones. You know, I'm sure the 2019 Ravens would have been happy to be the lone bidders on elite running back play. But the teams who might do that now, Falcons just drafted a generational running back prospect. Lions just drafted a guy as if he were generational. We'll mm-hmm. see. Um, Steelers uh, drafted Najee Harris in the first round. Travis Etienne came out. Um, so I could see like the Bears and the Colts maybe being the market with QBs who can really, really run and trying to build a great running game. But the Colts, in my opinion, are playing dirty with Jonathan Taylor right now. So I think the pool of teams that could be bidders just happens to be really small right now. But where I disagree with you and say, at least in the short term, it uh, will fix itself or where I don't think it'll probably mm-hmm. fix itself is that these few contracts at the top propping up the franchise tag are falling off a cliff. And I think where that leaves you is this franchise tag creeping lower and lower 
and artificially get, getting more decoupled from market value. And even if you're Bijan, you know, you might want to kind of bounce a, more runs outside on your rookie deal and um, take less contract or take less contact maybe until the last year or so of your contract where you can really prove, hey, I'm this great running back and then seek your payday. So I think it's just really bad for the game the way that this whole thing's decoupled from market forces as far as I can tell right well, now. I, okay, let me let me stop you there because I think there's a there's a there's a supposition that goes with that that I don't necessarily agree with. And that is the notion that the other contracts, the ones for McCafferty and uh, Kamara were reasonable at the time. So you've gotten into the direction of the of the movement. It's definitely south. But did folks overpay at that position? We don't we don't question it at other positions in the same way. And there's generally been as long as you're seeing successive creep in contracts, then that's good indication that they, that teams did not overpay for that position. The quarterbacks, you know, it seems to be two and a half million additional total dollars on the contract for every new franchise quarterback that gets signed. Uh, that that's an indication that that market is about where it needs to be. Left tackles, we've seen consistent growth in that market. Wide receivers might be the next one where teams may have overpaid for the position. And they may mm-hmm. say, hey, we have to pull back from that. It's too much of the cap to, to devote to that. We have to pay everybody else. We need to figure out a way to allocate our dollars better. We, and we can't look at the way other teams have done it. We need to allocate our dollars better. Uh, so that's that's the point is I'm not sure that the initial contracts given to running backs at 16, 15, 12 and a half are necessarily the ones that I can I can sink my teeth into and say, those were the right numbers for those three guys. In fact, it's a very small sample size. Mm-hmm. And all these other contracts that have happened since, they're the bad numbers because they underpaid all these guys since. Okay, it's unusual that 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 the contracts are coming going in that direction, but it also may have been a function that those were outlier contracts, um, as Deshaun Watson seems to have been now, mm-hmm. that uh, you know teams needed to f- pull back from. So I think you're correctly detecting my presupposition, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but even if they're not correct, even if those are a little bit overpriced and that's why players are getting cut now, I think this structure where the franchise tag is falling off a cliff and I think the market force is breaking down, even if those were slight overpays, maybe because they were slight overpays Mm -hmm. and guys are getting cut from those contracts now. Like, I don't think you can look at the CBA with the rookie deal and the franchise tag and say that that franchise tags a fair value. And I think the truth is that for a huge majority of even really good running backs, by the time they finish their four years, plus that franchise tag, they're not going to have that much left in the uh, tank. So if you look at the mechanism that the franchise tag is designed to exploit, which is, Hey, there's going to be this upper echelon of players and that's how we're going to peg the values of this that upper echelon just is falling apart in the running back market. Now in, in just what you said, I think you hit exactly what the crux of the issue is, is that the, the four year structure of contracts in the NFL, the four year free agency is what really plays against running backs because they have so much of their value comes in those first four years when their salary is controlled by the cap and the slotting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's, it's just a, it's a, um, 
It's an unfortunate circumstance for running backs. I don't know how you would structure that in a future CBA to say, hey, this needs to be different. For the running back position, can we have, you know, three-year free agency sounds ridiculous, but can we have another built-in component of this where running backs can earn more if they meet certain thresholds? I think that's that's probably the most likely thing. So you have that rookie contract deal, Devin DuVernay and somebody else are making the exact same amount, $4.304 million, and it's based on, on making a Pro Bowl and being a starter and this and that. Um, but it's a, But it's a pay-for-play component to what they've got. I think it's more likely you get something like that negotiated through than you get a uh, a complete change to revenue sharing. And basically, then I come back to the zero-sum nature of revenue sharing is that there are a total number of dollars involved. If running backs win, and you, you'd be creating some sort of running back winning structure where they may get maybe get an additional average of $1.5 million per team, let's say, that means other other positions have to bite the bullet on the rest of that and take less. Mm-hmm. So a, a Chris Sims point that I thought was good here is players do look out for each other. And when everyone on the Giants looks at Saquon and says, this is the freakiest guy, the best guy on our team, I think it does rub them the wrong way that he's making so much less than comparable people. And mm-hmm. while there's like a true market value aspect to what's going on, where maybe there's more platooning, the league's getting more pass-happy, all of these things, I think the franchise tag's becoming really artificial, and I think it's hitting running backs where it hurts most. And that's the central piece of the dynamic going on here, where I'm arguing this is what's really hurting running backs, is even if they survive those four years, that fifth year where they might be really productive, that fifth year that guys like Derrick Henry used to negotiate a few-year deal that's getting snatched out from under them for cheap. And then they're not getting extended. So this is getting cheaper. And this is why I think that it's it's not fair to say just the running back market's actually that low. These guys aren't hitting free agency when they're uh, coming off their fourth year. Mark, that's a very valid point, what you just made. And and if if the if the only real question is about how much leverage exists from the franchise tag, then that particular thing can probably be addressed with some sort of amendment to the CBA saying that the running back um, uh, uh, franchise tag has to be at least X percent of some other position, say. Or it'll be addressed Uh, when Jonathan Taylor quiet quits on the field for a season and everyone says this is bad for football. Okay. And and that's market forces doing it and maybe, maybe negative market forces that, that, you know, you'd be looking at that you really don't want, but there is, there are ways to address that. And, and if it's really the franchise tag is the problem and and you make a very good point about that. And I completely agree that it's the first four years, the most productive years running backs have more of that taken away, but let's not forget who did that to them. It's the NFLPA who basically said, okay, based on my current constituency, um, you know, we'll take away money from players on rookie contracts. Running backs across the college ranks at that time should have taken that for the for the uh, shiv to the gut that it was at the mm-hmm. time. I don't think they really knew. I don't think anybody had a full grasp on exactly how bad this situation was going to get. But you know, the fact that that uh, that that they can't negotiate those contracts on their rookie deals hurt them more than any other position uh, as as time has rolled on. 
Yeah, and this is why I disagree with the Ursae quote so much. We negotiated a CBA in good faith. Well, it's falling apart before your eyes. You can amend it or negotiate another one at any time. You don't have to throw the whole thing out. Just like come to the table and fix it. Because I think this is going down a road that's ultimately going to be bad for the NFL. And I suspect some people are being short-sighted now where they can say, where they're saying, wow, I can franchise my really good running back for really cheap. I don't see the problem here. But I think there's a lot of ways it could bite them in the butt. And I think it really might take something bad for the game happening uh, before people come back to the table and try to fix this structure. Great points, Mark. And uh, we certainly hope that, that that'll be uh, you know a discussion point that probably gets addressed in the next CBA and possibly before then, because they've done a lot of adjustments to the CBA uh, going forward. But when we, one of the important things about having any sort of discussion like this, that's why I appreciate having it with you so much, Mark, because I think it becomes an emotional discussion with a lot of people. I think you need to come to the table with starting with the notion that this is a zero-sum game. As long as you can, we can start with that, then we can talk about all the reasons why that zero-sum game has burned running games in running backs in particular. And and I, I really appreciate you doing that. I've had some other very emotional discussions, particularly with regard to with Martin Jackson, where I didn't feel like I got the same kind of uh, back and forth with the person talking with me about this. So I, I really appreciate you, Mark. <laughs> and in the least emotional way that I can. I don't think it's completely zero sum. And I think that's where a lot of this stuff is coming up. Like the salary cap is dynamic. The revenue share is dynamic. And I think part of that is what the top end of the market's getting paid now. Like the precedent drives up future contracts and it drives up the salary cap to some extent. And maybe there are problems with that tactic. But it's not completely out of nowhere either. I would say. Where's the where the where the dollars? How do you get the owners, because of the running back contract situation, to move their trenches on the um, revenue sharing as a percentage of total? Oh, sorry, that was in reference to QB contracts. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. I don't. I think the the question remains the same. Is is if you want any special arrangement made if if i'm i can take the position of the owners very easily here it's easy for me to see it as a as a finance guy and just say look you guys allocate your money however you want to among your players or give Mm -hmm. us rules for allocation i am completely agnostic to it i'll pay rookies more if you want i'll pay veterans more if you want i'll pay running backs more if you want to set up special structures for them i may find ways to get around it but but i'll play with whatever rules you want to set for the division of those dollars that come from your 51.5% or whatever the hell it is now. But don't tell me that you've got a problem three years from now when you're the ones who are setting the rules. I'm not, I'm not gonna tell you, I'm not gonna tell you how to pay your own guys. I'm gonna tell you here's 51.5%. I'll even leave the pool out there and and say, hey, we can it, it doesn't really that really wouldn't work because you know teams have to sign their own players, they have to have free agency, you have to have an open market, you have to have that working. But you know, basically, you set the rules for who you want to earn money, we'll agree to them, and then we'll play under those rules. But please don't tell me you haven't you don't have enough money three years from now, because this is this is our central point in being here is to f- figure out how you guys get divided your share of the revenue. Sure. 
I, I, I maybe want to regroup on this and think about it for another show. My perception is the more you have star players holding high end contracts, the more the idea is that in order to keep this trend going, we need to increase the salary cap, but maybe the owners don't care and it actually doesn't matter. I don't know. I think it, I think it matters to both the owners and players that the salary cap grows dramatically over time because it means revenue is growing. It means the business is doing well. Mm-hmm. I think if the, the problems come when one side wants more than they're getting in terms of the total pie, that's, that's where it, it becomes an issue. And that's where the trenches are. So any talk about individual contracts, they're a microcosm of what's going on in these dug-in trench lines, minefields, and dragon teeth that exist between the two sides in terms of total revenue distribution. Mm-hmm. I I have a question, and there might not be a quick answer at all, but the valuation of franchises has skyrocketed. Um, like, if you look at the, this owner bought it this time, and now the team's worth this much, beating the stock market by a lot. Um, so it seems like owners found some way to really make it work for them. And I don't know exactly what that story is, but do you have an idea of like, is it really just TV deals in the sport getting more popular and the relative percentages stayed the same or even uh, increased for players? It, um, I think the percentage actually went down from the highest it ever was, which was 60, I believe. For players, yeah, and 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 so that 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 has been true. But ownership, we're out of an era of public funded stadiums, which is part of the reason why that number had to come down. Hmm. So the the owners are basically having to fund these stadiums, and the owners have been clever about having a pool for stadium funding that they share, mm-hmm. and 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 they draw from. So anyway, they 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 do. The owners have been smart about that. Um, in terms of the uh, the overall growth and things. We're in the era, an explosive era of streaming, number one, that is funded pro sports in a way like never before. And we're in a very dangerous and explosive era of sports gambling. Now, in the past, when this has happened, it has not been good for pro sports to have a bunch of gambling around it. You know, actually very limited gambling that's going on in Nevada has been much better for for pro sports in terms of the integrity of the game qualities. You look back to eight men out, but all sorts of fixes that have been, um, you, you know, gone through the years, uh, you, you, it has not been good for sports to get in bed with gambling um, the way it did. But they're they're now completely in bed with gambling. We see right on these Oriole broadcasts, over unders and three way parlays and whatnot. It just makes me sick, frankly. As a mathematician, I look at how much juice there is in each of these individual bets, and I'm like, why on earth? Would anyone do this? Go play a hand of blackjack if you want to do this. You, you know, you'll, you'll play at a you know at a half percent disadvantage under the under you know normal basic strategy rules, or you can play at like an eight percent disadvantage on your sports bet. I just I don't get it. <laughs> so so it's hard for me to sit there and and uh, and watch that uh, happen. But anyway, it is it is what it is. They they those two sources of revenue. Um, will push the game forward to, I think, new heights in terms of the total dollars that they that they gather. And I can't tell you how far that pig is through the Python, how far they are towards collecting most or all of that revenue already at this point. They may have a lot still to grow in terms of gambling, um, and they might still have some to grow due to streaming, although I think they've really, a group that's really gotten 
absolutely taken it in the ass, frankly, from the, from the recent streaming changes are people who own big direct TV setups like me. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, our, our house is totally built around watching the NFL and, and, uh, uh, we can watch seven games at once in my TV room. And now that whole system is useless because they've moved it to YouTube. That's incredible though. Yeah. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that, but, uh, yeah, it really sucks. Can you can you run HDMI to all those monitors and just replace it with uh web so stuff? I need to have a smart guy like you come in and figure <laughs> out how it could be done. So if I know I I could probably have a separate computer running each of those and have a YouTube package that will allow me to have as many separate game streams as possible. Uh, it's more expense to go to, but I'm I'm going to have to do that at some point, and I'd love to have your input on how that would work. But yes, all of those all those monitors have HDMI, of course. <laughs> We can do another show on setting up multiple monitors. It'll be there great. That'd be a good one. Mark, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate having you. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Like, I, I know we we just talked very recently about getting this show. Incredible high quality content. Um, what, what would you have to say for somebody else who might want to come on and do a film study short? You know, I was, uh, I actually just reached out to you on Twitter about, um, kind of arguing this NFI point about team control pertaining to Andrew Voorhees. And then it got into the Colts threat to NFI Jonathan Taylor. And then it got into a running back conversation. But, you know, I'm pretty new to following football. And I don't think I'm the most knowledgeable person in the world. Um, so I really appreciate you offering to have me on and talk over this with me. And I think uh, I felt very welcomed. It was a good time. Um it was a really fun introduction into talking about some of these topics. So I guess just anyone who has something they're interested in talking about, I think this is a good platform to do it. Even if you're like me and you've only been here since the Lamar Jackson era started. All right. I say thanks. Thanks for that, Mark. Other folks out there, if you want to hit me up with a DM on Twitter, I will get right back to you. Just like I got right back to Mark uh, with your topic, but this was a, this was a truly fascinating one. And you bring a lot to this discussion, Mark, in terms of your background and, uh, how you think about this, no matter how much you want to downplay, just a, having a few years of experience with the NFL in general, uh, that, that's just not the case in terms of the conversation we've got, uh, effectively, but Mark, thanks again for coming on. All right. Go Ravens. Go O's. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you next time on film study. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.